I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 830 on Wednesday, November 10th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, rural schools wrestle with pandemic learning loss. Then evictions are on the rise throughout the Deep South. And after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, a look at efforts to combat COPD in rural America. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Many Mississippi kids are born already facing structural socioeconomic barriers to a quality education. And educators say learning disruptions due to COVID-19 have put students in an especially tough position. Dr. Deborah Dace is superintendent of schools in Greenville. She explains to MPB's Michael Guidry how her district looks to combat learning loss. At the beginning of the school year, we administered our diagnostics to all students in pre-K through 8. And so with that diagnostic, we were able to capture uh, where students' learning loss uh, actually took place, uh, how far they were behind, if they were behind, and those areas of deficit that we needed to focus on. So through our diagnostic assessment, as well as uh, as we continue through the year, we also have snapshots that are more curriculum aligned with our pacing. And then we also have our benchmark assessments that students participate in each nine weeks. So um, we actually have that data to triangulate and look at and kind of make some ongoing decisions regarding intervention, remediation, uh, as well as enrichment. And those students who we need to target for after school, you know, support, additional support uh, beyond the regular school day. And then we just have a regular testing schedule that we use throughout the school year. The math scores were the most noticeable, no, most yeah. noticeably affected. Does that boil down to just the, the nature of, of teaching mathematics and needing uh, or, or at least valuing that, that inter-classroom yeah. connection and checking for understanding and things like that? 
Well, I'll say it kind of boils down to that. Um, but I think it has a lot to do with the attendance as well. We struggled with students being in attendance online last year. Uh, although our teachers use a plethora of tools that enable them to, you know, engage the learner, um, the whiteboard, you know, especially for math so that they could monitor what they were, were writing and to get a feedback um, regarding that. I think it was just um, them not being in attendance where, where the, the, the learning loss was enhanced because they were not actually there. What factors played a role in that? Was it the lack of broadband infrastructure? Was it the lack of, or, or did were you, were you prepared? I know the the Department of Education stepped in and they provided some funds through the you know through some of the COVID federal COVID relief to make yeah. sure people had devices. But but were were those hurdles you had to to uh, clear as well as far as like having the the infrastructure and the accessibility for students to learn online? I'll say initially uh, infrastructure was an issue and we were not a one-to-one district. And so we were uh, providing the, the, the learning packets or uh, paper packets as some of the parents called it, but we were uh, providing learning packets for our students as we closed out the 1920 school year. And as we started the 2021 school year, uh, we started on a um, kind of a hybrid model with the paper packets and the online learning for those students who have the, had those devices. After we uh, disseminated the devices, uh, we definitely had, everyone had a device uh, when they returned in January of 21. So that was over half, 50% of the school year. And so I think, you know, having those devices uh, did hinder the attendance because students uh, and parents, they got comfortable with picking up the, the paper packets. And so once we were able to log on daily uh, for instruction, uh, we did have some some parents, some students who were a little reluctant, and they asked for the paper packets, uh, although they had the devices. So I, I think that did have something to do with it, um, you know, ongoing so throughout the school year. As we learn more about how um, this interruption in traditional learning has impacted schools and school districts. Uh, are there long-term changes you're considering? I know some districts in the state have um, have considered adopting a more year-long academic yeah. calendar uh, to try to you know minimize those long months in the summer. Uh, what like long-term right. strategies are you looking at, and what uh, is the data informing you about maybe what things you might consider? So long term, um, we have not had a discussion regarding, um, you know, the year-round schedule uh, or form form of a year-round schedule. We're basically just continuing to look at the curriculum, uh, what we're offering inside the regular, you know, learning day. Uh, we found that even pre-COVID, that we kind of struggled uh, in my area with students attending, you know, after school. And so maybe in the future uh, there may be some discussion around extending the, the, the calendar, the yearly calendar, because I think that would probably be the most beneficial. So obviously the, there are things, there's, there's policies, there are decisions to be made at the district mm-hmm. and school level to address learning loss. But what support mm-hmm. would you like to see from the community uh, and then and maybe even the greater statewide community when it comes to addressing learning loss? I guess grace as it relates to state testing and 
labeling uh, schools and districts until I think they can get a grasp on what they're dealing with right now. They shouldn't have that hovering over their heads. You know, I think teachers and students and parents, uh, if they're learning and they're putting forth their best effort, if they're not deemed to be failures, I think that that will help drive them more in the direction that they need to go. So I think if it, what could be lax would be the issue. And I understand that testing has its purpose. And I remind my staff and I remind my students that, you know, as long as you're learning and you're putting forth your best effort, then you're doing what you're supposed to do. Uh, of course, we need to use data to drive instruction and to drive the targets and the um, support that we're putting in place. Uh, and, and that's it. Just use the data to do that and make sure that we're moving in the right direction. So I would just ask the community and the legislators and everyone to just, you know, just give grace um, to school educate, to educators, period, um, everyone, um, as well as our um, students. Dr. Deborah Dace is superintendent of Greenville Public Schools. Coming up, evictions in the South are rising and legal aid offices say we've yet to hit the peak. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Evictions are on the rise in the South. The good news is that Mississippi, Alabama, and Louisiana still have millions of dollars from a federal emergency aid program to help renters. The bad news is that there's so much left because those states have been slow to get money to the people who need it. As Stephen Bissaha of the Gulf States Newsroom reports, the programs are still frustrating both tenants and landlords. More evictions mean more calls at places like the Fair Housing Center of Northern Alabama, says Executive Director Lila Hackett. Basically all day. <laughs> they're, they're ringing when we come in in the mornings most times, and they ring until we leave and after closings. Now, not every call they get is for an eviction, but eviction calls have been slowly increasing there and at legal aid offices across the Gulf South since the CDC's eviction moratorium ended in late August. Have we peaked with that, or do you think it's going to continue to get, get worse? No, I think it's going to get worse. I think we're just seeing the beginnings now. Lots of calls are also coming from people frustrated with the Federal Emergency Relief Program. The feds gave Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana a combined $1.1 billion for the aid. But 10 months after the funds were approved, the three states have only spent 19% of the money. One reason for the slow rollout comes down to how hard it could be to sign up. Even Georgetown University assistant professor Eva Rosen, who studies housing, has a tough time as she reads over Alabama's application. The answers of yes will be considered if the application, oh goodness, I don't know what any of this means. <laughs> Rosen says a lot of people don't finish the paperwork because of requirements like government IDs, copies of leases, and late payment notices. You don't necessarily save that, right? And a lot of people don't have a formal lease or they don't remember where it is. Income verification, that is where a lot of people get tripped up. Um, This is a lot of documentation. People also get denied aid because of how difficult it could be to prove the coronavirus is the reason for the late rent. 
Now, the state requires so much documentation because they're trying to avoid fraud. During a hearing on this in late September, Alabama State Senator Roger Smitherman grilled leaders from the Alabama Housing Finance Authority. Because it seems like we're, we're so tight on trying to serve these people under the name of fraud or whatever. We're strangling these people. We, well, we, we, yeah, we actually strangling them. Another problem comes from landlords refusing to accept the federal aid. Sarah Taggart is a lawyer who represents landlords in Alabama. She says one of her clients turned down the money because he didn't want anything from the current president. And so we had to get the check cut to legal services so legal services could give it to the tenants, that the tenant could give it to the landlord so that the landlord didn't get any money from Joe Biden. And you're just like, all right, that that was that was something. But she said that's way less common of a reason than her clients just not trusting Alabama's statewide rental assistance program because of how bad the rollout has been. And I'd like to say that that's illogical, but I've been dealing with those programs. And, you know, you never know when you're going to get paid. You can never get someone on the phone. I once got two checks for the same tenant from the same program, which made no sense. Some landlords have been willing to wait for the money, but only for so long. My landlord... She trying to be patient, but you know she want her money. Katrina Skinner lives in the Mississippi Delta. She sent in her paperwork for rental assistance to the state back in September. But the state's still reviewing her application. Now she's starting to lose her patience, too. We got all the documents. How, what's more do y'all want from us that we got all the information in? Now, these aid programs have improved a lot since they first started. The feds loosened their rules and so did the states. But some programs are still running slow enough that people like Skinner are left wondering which will come first, the aid or the eviction. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Stephen Basaha. The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership between WBHM in Birmingham, WWNO in New Orleans, Mississippi Public Broadcasting, and NPR. Coming up after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, a look at efforts to combat COPD in rural America. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD, makes breathing dangerously difficult for the millions of U.S. residents who suffer from it. And according to the American Lung Association, even diagnosing the condition can be a challenge in rural states like Mississippi. Nicole Goldsberg is the organization's national manager for lung disease programs. She speaks with MPB's Kobe Vance. COPD is actually the third leading cause of disease-related deaths across the country. Um, And why it's so important um, and this program is so important is because many people who have COPD actually don't recognize the symptoms until they're diagnosed at later stages. And so often people think their shortness of breath or difficulty doing normal daily activities is really a sign of older aging versus a sign of COPDs. Could you tell us a little bit about your program and what y'all are doing to reach out to these uh, rural healthcare providers to try to, you know, help address COPD in these rural communities? Across the nation, there's nearly 5 million um, 
people living in rural communities that are diagnosed with COPD. And there's really hundreds of thousands more that don't know that they have it. And this comes from um, the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. And so really our goal is to provide additional education and and support for rural healthcare providers so they can really start that conversation with some patients that they may be seeing who are experiencing more shortness of breath and who may have a smoking history or have been exposed to other risk factors for COPD. More than 200,000 people in Mississippi have been have been diagnosed with COPD, but y'all say that, you know, many more may have the disease. What is the importance of making sure that, you know, healthcare providers in those rural areas are reaching out to their communities to make sure they can identify this? Really, um, early diagnosis, um, while there is no cure for COPD, it is treatable and manageable, especially when it's diagnosed early. So having that conversation with healthcare providers is extremely important um, because, again, as I said earlier, a lot of the symptoms do go unrecognized until COPD is in later stages of the disease. So it's really important to kind of start that conversation um, as early as possible. So when y'all are uh, talking with those rural providers, what kind of content? What kind of content are they able to get through y'all? Uh, what kind of you know, educational resources are available for them? Sure. So um, rural providers have access to free educational, online educational opportunities. Um, we developed specifically for this program a um, one and a half hour program called COPD Overview, which is really kind of a high-level overview of the COPD guidelines-based care. It offers continuing education credits as well for our healthcare providers. We also have another program. It's called Ask, Advise, Refer to Quit, Don't Switch. Um, We know that with healthcare providers, they do have a lot of conversations with their patients, if especially about quitting smoking. And so this program, it's really encouraging that conversation based on the five A's from the CDC, um, talking about really the, the highlights of what to discuss when you're talking with your patients about quitting smoking. And we also have uh, resources with spirometry, and we know that that's one of the main Um, tools that's used to diagnose COPD. And so we have a lot of resources and support um, for those healthcare providers um, and kind of encouraging how to talk to their patients about why they should have this lung function test. In addition to those free courses, we also are offering rural healthcare providers um, patient-focused handouts from the American Lung Association and the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute's Learn More, Breathe Better program, which really focus on um, COPD management for their patients, as well as um, tobacco cessation handouts. Um, And all of those are available at no cost. Why are y'all specifically focusing on rural communities? So in rural communities, COPD rates are twice as high as the overall population. And so providing those additional resources and materials for providers, you know, is really just kind of the, the, the main goal of our program. And what are y'all hoping this could do for the people in those rural communities? One of the things that we're really hoping to do is kind of start that conversation earlier. So, um, you know, one thing that we do know is that um, in rural communities, it's 
it could be more challenging to access healthcare providers, um, and also there might be more challenges with delaying receiving healthcare. So it really is just kind of getting people to better understand and recognize that some of the symptoms they may be experiencing, um, it's important to discuss those with your doctor. And so if you are experiencing shortness of breath or a cough that continues and isn't really improving, um, kind of talking to your doctor about those signs and symptoms um, and kind of exploring what they might be because sometimes it could be a result of older age or it could be chronic lung disease or something else. So it's important to, to have that conversation with their doctor. Nicole Goldsberg is National Manager for Lung Disease Programs at the American Lung Association. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.